0: Welcome to the Old Chats pod with me and here and me James Factor. This podcast will tackle the taboo topic of mental health in a raw, honest and jovial way with two good mates who've met in London talking about their own mental health hiccups with some help from some special guests along the way.
1: Welcome to episode 19. This is the Concussion Chat. Here we speak to London Irish and former HAC coach Jack Pattinson about his own experience with the Invisible Injury concussion, how it affected his emotions, and ultimately led to a brief loss of identity. The talk also discusses how leaders can deal with mental health hiccups within teams.
0: How's the week Thanks, Doctor? Not too bad, mate,
1: not too bad. How about yours?
0: Yeah, right, mate. It's quite, quite explosive television on Monday night with the the Harry and Meghan interview.
1: I heard people uh, a lot of chat at work. I I didn't watch it, but I heard about some of the highlights from it. What was your takeaway of it?
0: Yeah, there are some big, there are some big highlights from it. And I think stripping it back, if you kind of forget about their titles, it was just yeah. two people talking. Especially quite a lot of it about their mental health as well. Two people yeah. talk about how they've removed themselves from the situation which Was affecting them mentally, hopefully, for the benefits for themselves. And I know, like, there's a real 50 50 split, I believe, sometimes, in like people's opinions on Meghan and Harry and what's going on. But the bottom line is the crux of the interview is Meghan kind of talking about her suicidal thoughts and how she didn't want to live when she was that part of the monarchy at points, which should massively be appra- applauded. Yeah, like, it's just so brave for anyone, irrespective if you're a celebrity or a normal person, to talk about their. Suicidal thoughts because for them, it's, it's obviously such a dark moment that they're maybe not like proud of it. But I know the backlash that Pete that she's got it's like, Oh, she's doing for attention. was like, She's really not like a friend could easily be reading that post you've put on social media, slagging off Megan about her mental health, where they could easily have had those same thoughts before. And by you posting that, they're obviously not going to come to you when they feel like that because you don't know how to react.
1: Yeah, she's she hugely congratulated me for coming that and saying it. If you're on, like you said, regardless of title or anything, put yourself in that mindset of, with the stigma around, even now talking about that kind of stuff, to go out there and just say that openly and think of how, whether you kind of, you know, she's a bit, people love her or hate her, don't they? But essentially she has a huge following, regardless of whether you love her or hate her. So you're going to, we're talking about it now and I don't really keep any... Uh, tabs on that on the royal family really yeah, outside outside of this so like you said if that it, the way that the media you can have an opinion about getting into you know the mental health bandwagon I guess and discussing it but the the, the strength with which that backlash has come I think is hugely detrimental like you said to other people who if they do follow Megan and she is an example for other people if they don't then think it's an important issue for them to talk about their own issues, then that's that's the real consequence. That's the real um downside to that response to it. Regardless of whether you think she's bed imbe- not that I don't think she is embellishing it at all. I like I've I've looked at that bit of the interview and it seems, you know, why would she be saying that if it's not yeah. true?
0: Also Harry talks about his mental health and and I think a big thing that people forget about Harry is like he's like imagine your mum dying. Imagine your mum dying at a young age is probably I believe is like one of the worst things that could happen to you when you're a kid. Like one of your parents dying. His par- his mum died, global television. He's there across the world, everyone's seeing the funeral. Like no one's like holding his hand. Like I didn't he didn't even see him cry in the video. Like he's obviously still grieving. Like that'll always be a part yeah. of him. It really struck a chord me when he talks about how like press took away his mum and doesn't want to take away his wife. Which like he yeah. should generally be like so applauded for just going out of it and just doing his own thing
1: yeah and commenting back on it as well yeah for the sake of trying to just have these kind of like we've we're talking about it now and if they just there's a kind of I guess the argument people would make is that you know you can walk away from it and all the titles and all of the you know the embellishments and then you live your life and you try your hardest to get away from the press and and you you live a low a low-key life but the two things that are the press follow the monarchy regardless of whether they're trying to stay away or not. And secondly, why would you not talk about, if you've got a platform to talk about your experience of it, what do you owe the, the monarchy to keep silent on that? If there are issues like mental health, which could inf- could affect other people in their lives and, and improve them, then then get on them for doing it, I think. Yeah, 100%. Oh,
0: massive, massively applauded. So yeah.
1: the other thing that's been going on recently is the Sever Everend vigil that's being held on, well... Clapham Common has been the focal point. We know Clapham well. We train there with the HAC. What are your thoughts on the gathering that's happened and and I guess more on the mental health side of it, maybe rather than the any kind of policy discussion that's going on at the moment, just from a mental health perspective.
0: Yeah, I don't know about you, but I think probably because of our age bracket and the fact like we live in South and or have lived in South all our friends are around there. Like it's been like prevalent upon all my news feeds and like. Tops of conversation this week, um, which which is great, but also I I put my hands up. Like, I don't, we don't have, like, me and you don't have personal experiences of what these females have gone through. Don't get me wrong, like, I've only got, I've only, I don't have any sisters. I've just got a mum, got like a female cousin. I've obviously had girlfriends in the past, and I have like two or three like really good girl mates, and they have like touched upon aspects, but I don't think, I like to think now they're more comfortable to talk about. To blokes about it because i see loads of things where it's like yeah men are the problem like men are the devil and i think from a male point of view like we're not the most emotionally intelligent if you're telling people men are the devil they might not listen to you but if you open up like make it comfortable and obviously just open out and tell their personal experiences a hundred percent blokes are more willing to educate themselves about it and i i'll hold my hands up like i'm not really in a position to comment much about it and it's something that I definitely want to learn yeah, more yeah, about. Yeah. And we can't, we're not going to do it just five like two minutes here. we'll hopefully have like a further episode on it.
1: Definitely. Yeah, like I said, it's it's a longer discussion point, but to, to approach it as a man, I guess. And as you said, with the the varying levels of backlash against what's perceived to be against men as a as an entire bracket, I guess all, all you can do is just interrogate yourself a bit. And there's nothing there's nothing bad or wrong about that if you if you interrogate yourself and you come to the conclusion that you know you're happy with the state of you know the world and yourself within it and your relationships with women and with men then then you can ignore it I think the think the reason why it's kind of men feel that they should respond in some way or that they're being provoked to respond is that potentially they don't like that idea that they should be yeah, intero- yeah, that they should be interrogating themselves and they kind of like and then if you do come up with something that you know or maybe I haven't been quite acting in the way that I'd like or I didn't think about this perspective as much as I had maybe in the past similar to BLM as well you know it's kind of something yeah. you're vaguely aware That's of and um, I can't see any downside really to having that moment to interrogate yourself and then if, if you want to you know ignore the the movements and the vigils and everything else, then that's your decision. No one's going to, you know, it's not, um, a, it shouldn't be perceived as a witch hunt. It's just a chance for dialogue like we're having and that hopefully we're going to have in the future with with women about it and just to move forward with it. Um, yeah. I don't think you can do any more than that, really.
0: Yeah, and like, I like to like, I've had a week of like reflecting on it as well and like I hold my hands up
1: like, yeah,
0: I've probably said the wrong things at the wrong time, especially at university when, you remember, like, there's a big like lad culture, like that was all developing. And I think as time goes on, things improve, and I hold my hands up, like I definitely need to improve, and I know that. But I'm I'm willing to like I'm willing to learn, and I like to yeah. think we've got a platform here where people could listen to, and actually yeah. educate
1: themselves on it as well. Right. Yeah, I hope we do. I hope we find out more about it, um, as because it has just you know unfolded now. Final mention to Amesh, congratulations on completing the David Goggins challenge. Thank you very much, mate. I can't begin to say how tough a challenge it is, but Mesh, maybe give a few details of what it involved and uh, what you went through this last weekend.
0: We've measured David Goggins in the past; ridiculous fitness athlete. Very, quite intense, but he does this twice a year. So normally it's just for Christmas and like Easter time now. Um, so it's like the four by four by forty-eight challenge. So he's running four miles every four hours for forty-eight hours. So he started started eight o'clock on friday like america pacific time um so obviously it's not our time it's saturday four o'clock so basically it's just it's your whole weekend of getting a plan together and running but i think and i'm generally not just saying this i've taken so much of like our past 18 chats incorporated it probably as well without thinking as well so goal setting i set a plan it was running four miles every four hours so i just said get myself a maximum of an hour to do the run then I've got three hours to eat, sleep, stretch, shower, then I'll go again. Yeah. I always have like the first thing I do when I come home is like set the alarms, bang. Like have the same routine. Big thing as well was like mindfulness. So like when I was running, like when it was shit, I just slowed it down, got back to my breathing. Remember our old session with your uncle Mark. Yeah. And especially the biggest thing as well, probably more so when I'm running, is helping me sleep. Because obviously you've you've exercised, your adrenaline's pumping. But when it's like four o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, it's like, you need to sleep. Yeah. How do you
1: shut yourself down to get into that? Yeah,
0: exactly. And it's just mindfulness, just slowing down the breathing. Just helped me just go back to sleep. Then yeah, a couple of other things in the sense of, I think there was my second or third one, my Strava started, my Strava broke. So I didn't record it. It was a classic. This is right at the beginning. I was like, oh, I might as well just give up here. And I was like, the first thing that came to my head was like, people are not going to believe I've done it. Luckily I had my phone on me and obviously Apple Health like recorded it. My first thought was shit, people aren't gonna believe i would do it. And then at the end I was like, Right, when I finish the 12 runs, I'm gonna just run the the miles that Strava didn't record. And I was slowing myself down. I was like, Why should I care what other people think? Like I've actually done that, my body knows I've done it.
1: That's so such a good point, yeah.
0: This is what we did. It's what we said before in the social media chat, like who cares about other people? Like, it was this was just me against me. Yeah. And it's more a case of I just wanted to show that, yeah, I exactly do it to myself.
1: If anything, I've, I've I've rate that more that it died on you, and then just like who cares?
0: And then, like, a couple of other things. Whereas, I, I think it was like run eight, where I was literally, I was that was the, the, the point I was just wanted to throw the towel in and shout out to like to people on my Stravos, like jenks and stuff, for, like giving me kudos and like just a little mess, just keeping me going. But he came to run eight, and I was like, I actually just need to walk this, like, I hadn't drunk, I hadn't. All I did was sleep. And I literally remember, I went, I walked it, put my headphones in, didn't play any music. I literally just reflected for like the iron thing. It took like an hour and 20 to walk the four miles. I did it. And then I was just like re- reinvigorated. Kind of took the negatives that all. What was, what could I learn from the last seven? How can I take it into the last four? And that was actually really helpful. And then the final thing for me was, obviously, when I'd done it, I personal on social media. I told my mates. I didn't really tell many people I was doing it. Because if I'm honest, I didn't back myself to do it yeah the biggest thing i take from it is like that sense of self-belief like i don't think i've ever really had and then obviously when i was posting it i actually found it hard to like i find it pretty overwhelming to take compliments probably because i haven't had as much in the past before but i remember when people were like oh mate this is like so so good the first thing i'd say was yeah but i walked the eighth one and then it only clicked like a few times after i was like why am I saying that as the first thing? You know what I mean? Like, I'm kind of straight away. Someone yeah. said, "Well done."
1: You're already self criticized Yeah, you kind yeah. of like denied that that kudos. Yeah,
0: and that was like that was probably like the first two or three people that said it. And obviously, amazing for them. They were like, "Mate, who cares?" Like, that was when it clicked. I was like, "Shit, why am I? Why am I saying that straight away?" <laughs> but I mean, yeah, obviously, like, I couldn't recommend it enough. Like, if anyone, I'm not the strongest of runner, but it's more just a mental thing. Like, it doesn't matter how doesn't matter how long it takes you to do four miles. Like.
1: It sounds like it's all, it's mental, isn't it? It's yeah, not 100% time, really. It's just getting it done.
0: Where I live, it's like, it's, it can be quite quiet in the middle of the night. And that's what this week as well it clicked when the whole Sarah everything thing. I was like, I was running at four o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, when it's pitch black. There's a few cars that I drove past, like, looked, whatever. They were, it was just l- lunatic. But like, like even when the Sarah Everett happened, I was like, shit, imagine if it did it if I was like a, a female. Yeah. But it did that, was like, kind of clicked again as well this week.
1: I guess you got so much time to think about.
0: Yeah. Stuff, oh man, you see.
1: just chat, either you you drift off, I guess, to things like just like you know, thoughts like that, and then moments where you really have to push through. I guess.
0: Yeah. Oh no, definitely. And I think yeah, I highly, actually, I highly recommend the uh, Frank Bruno versus Mike Tyson on Sky Diveridge. That got that that got me through the before the last room. Oh mate,
1: I've I've been meaning to watch it. I've seen adverts for it. I'd love to see that. Is it good? I, I
0: love I love Mike Tyson. I obviously I love Frank Bruno. Yeah, really
1: yeah. good. The whole story behind Frank Bruno as well. That's another that's
0: interesting. Mate, the sorry, whole dynamics it was, of it. And obviously his mental health as well, the Frank Bruno Foundation. But yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. He's a
0: national hero. Talking of national or local heroes. Go on. With our next guest. Jack Pat, Jack Patterson. Jack, how are we, mate? Hey lads, how are you? Yeah, good mate. How are you?
2: Good. Good to see you both. How have things been? All oh, right, mate,
0: same old. Mate, looks like you've had a haircut. How have you had a haircut? Yeah, what's going on there?
2: My, my
1: missus, my missus just gets on the old. Jealous, oh, jealous. Hey, I'm, de- I'm dying for a haircut. I need to get that sorted. On today's show, we've got Jack Pattinson. He is a development coach at London Irish. Um, I did do a little YouTube stalk as well for his uh, his YouTube highlights. It's a great watch. England Students, 2011 to 2013. Middlesex Sevens, 2011. And Durham first team, 2010 to 2013. Great music as well to that soundtrack. <laughs> bastille Pompeii. I don't think that would work on a rugby wheel highlights, but it actually works perfectly. So we'll send links to that later. But Jack, welcome to the show.
2: Cheers, lads. Excited to be on. It'd be
1: great if we started off, I guess, with something that's in the news quite a lot at the moment. It's a big discussion point uh, around concussion in the game and just head injuries in general. And maybe if we just talk a bit about your take on what's going on in you know, the wider rugby world and the media, and then obviously we'll move on to your personal experience with it. And then later in the show, we'll get into, you know, the ups and downs of your career, what you're up to now and just your outlook on life and, and everything else in between. Yeah, I think rugby is a bit of a,
2: a bit of a crossroads, isn't it? I mean you just got to watch the Premiership at the minute and actually the Six Nations. I mean, what was there? five red cards last weekend in the Premiership with a lot of shots to the head and people are complaining and saying it's ruined the game. I'm mixed on it, if I'm honest. I think the referees need to be pretty strong on it and we need to see, we almost need to go through this quite turbulent patch because then you'll get behaviour change in how people tackle and and then you've got the off-field stuff with... Steve Thompson and um, that group of former players um, yeah. looking to sue World Rugby. I mean, if, let's be honest, if I was an adult and I didn't know much about rugby and I had a, a 12, 13-year-old son or daughter and I saw the current state of the game, I'm not sure how comfortable I'd, I'd feel about, yeah, go and, go and play your local uh, club on a Sunday morning. Like, uh, I think there's a lot to sort out. I think it's quite scary, if I'm honest, particularly if this this court case... And we see a sort of NFL style outcome where a mass payout is required from world rugby. I mean, what state of the game, what state does that leave the game in? Particularly those nations that aren't in that top tier one bracket, how much does that affect their funding? and then what do we see to the the quality of the product when we're watching the game? Yeah, it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I think we're at a critical point to be honest.
0: And the massive leave if you ever play any sport and you're scared of getting injured, you're gonna get injured. Like I've never thought everyone ever played rugby. Oh, I'm gonna hit my head. It just like it just happened. I don't think it's more. I can see what you're saying about I would be apprehensive about letting a, a like my child play the game, but there, there must be. There's definitely ways that you can limit it. Like I'd like to think just limiting contacts within training would obviously help. That's a
1: start. Yeah, I think the as I think the the child adult distinction. I mean, there's a thing there. Like, as a, as a guardian, you know, I was a teaching assistant for for a year, so I've been around kids of all sizes, ages, you know, playing the game. And to be honest, you know, if I was a parent, I, I would probably let my child play still. And and I would see, I would just hope that the game is monitored a bit more as it goes on. Uh, but I would be very careful about who they're playing with, what the contact level is like at the ages as it moves up, as you get older. But for me, because I'm not a parent, uh, obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but I'm just, I'm just not, but <laughs> let's, let's say I'm not. Um, as an adult, which is the discussion I think that interests me more is that looking at you know, the decisions that I've taken in the past and saying whatever the outcome of these discussions are and the insights that will will come out of this later with regards to the data around you know, future consequences of having these knocks to the head and these injuries, would that affect my decisions that I've made as an adult? To play the game and what the game has sort of meant to me throughout you know the time i've played and the risk involved with that i think if if a lot of players say that they were oblivious to those kind of risks happening you know there's the knocks to the head and the other injuries that come about from it i'm not entirely sure I, I would back that kind of logic if you see what i mean i don't know what the steve thompson's coming forward and saying you know the world cup period was it that the information was there and that they were just not being told it or was it that um no one really knew what was going on and it was just a free-for-all
2: yeah my understanding is it's similar to the nfl so that they believe that world rugby had information that they didn't share that's my understanding of it i think Messi, you make a great point yes one of the simple solutions would be to to manage contacts like I know in NFL, they don't do any contact in between games, do they? It's just the game. So that might be one solution, particularly at the top end. Um, I don't know how that might affect players in the community game if they can't get any physical conditioning in for the game um, on the Saturday. But I'm, I'm sure it's manageable. I mean, we didn't do much contact at HAC, did we, in the week? We mainly just played the games.
0: And that's why that's why I've been there for so long.
2: <laughs> Longevity, exactly, and the long at last. <laughs> but look, look, fact—I think you make a great point. And look, we're rugby guys, and we um we've felt what it's like. We know that rugby can be a brilliant vehicle for all those memories, those people we meet. Like as cliched as it sounds, is just you learn to become a better person. You have the the most incredible experiences. But mm-hmm. I'm more thinking those people that don't get it, that haven't felt it. Ha- how 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 likely are they to get into the game? Because we need the game to grow, don't we? But yeah, I, I don't know yeah. the answers. I, I think the main problem is is with concussion, and I found this when I had it myself. It's invisible. It's the invisible injury, and like I remember, yeah. people would say to me, "Like, come on, man, you're you're fine," because they can't see anything that's wrong with me. Um, so that's the main issue with concussion. I think that's why it's such a difficult one.
1: How just on that then, on your own experience with it, how did that manifest itself? in discussions and from your experience with it what was the sensation like and then when did that come through that that diagnosis
2: well i mean i didn't and i actually don't think the game understood it at all as well as we do now i mean i look back now and i cringe at some of the things i used to hide and um and just crack on with i mean it wasn't until i got i had a number of scans had a number of brain scans and started speaking to the neurologist that I realised, oh, you don't have to be knocked out cold to be concussed. And then I started reflecting, like, well, I remember playing games where I would genuinely have—I'm not kidding you—two, maybe three minutes, where I'm just, I'm convinced I'm, I'm going. Th- I've been through here before. It's like the biggest deja vu I can't explain. And I would, I would run around the pitch, and I would genuinely see like black spots in my eyes and. And then it would fade and then the next day I'd have like these terrible headaches and I'd just assume oh, maybe i drunk something rough or i I drunk too much and that was it and then I'd crack on, crack on, train and play again. And I look back now and I'm like, that was pretty reckless. I mean, um, it all happened quite abruptly though because I guess I didn't start having real problems until my first year playing full-time at Ealing uh, where we're in it every day and doing contacting games and stuff like that. And then the symptoms, I guess, just got a little bit too much, and people started to notice around me. And like, I was quite punch drunk um, after a number of the big, big head knocks, and I would slur my words. And I, yeah, I remember watching um, something like EastEnders with Hannah, and then in the morning waking up and crying and trying to convince her that I was crying because it was something I watched on EastEnders. I mean, how how mad is that? So I, I was almost convinced. I was trying to convince myself that I was okay, but I look back now and I think. I had so many knocks to the head and I, I, because I wasn't out cold, I thought I was fine. And it was very difficult for me to justify to my teammates and the coach that I wasn't right because they couldn't see anything wrong with me. And so like peer pressure, micro politics, I want to be selected. I want to be popular with my friends. I, I deemed them more important because I didn't understand how, how potentially dangerous it was until someone actually said to me, you could get early onset dementia, which is what Steve Thompson, um, so sadly, has been diagnosed with at the age of 42. And I was told that when I was 23 years old. So, yeah, pretty scary stuff now, looking back.
1: So you were told that that was something that could happen. And this is less than than 10 years ago, isn't it? So the jump that's made in such a short time is obviously huge. But there was then that discussion you had, obviously, with a physio or a doctor or someone you trusted the advice of. And then you took it and you made that decision at that age just to, to walk away from it. If I'm
2: completely honest with you, lads, I'm still a tiny bit in denial now. I genuinely have dreams that I'm going to play at the weekend. And I sometimes even convince myself that maybe if I had an intense pre-season, I could just have one more go at it. But then, like, I was at work um, before the lockdown and we were playing five-a-side football and I headed the football and I felt so wobbly. I had to go and lie home in a pitch-black room and I was pretty wrecked for a few hours. And then you get a harsh reminder that you probably couldn't do it. No, yeah, yeah, I saw the neurologist. He said, look, we don't fully understand the severity of this, but the signs are telling us this is probably pretty risky to your long-term health. They did actually say um, one more concussion and then you should call it a day. So then on that news, yeah. obviously no one was willing to sign me on a contract because I could I could get paid out and get knocked out in my first training session, but then get paid for a year. Um, so I went and played, Like I think I managed four or five games for my local club at home. I thought, well, it's going to end. It's just a matter of when, so I'll go back to where it started and I think it was after my fifth game we had um, we had a good win actually, and uh, I remember hitting my head about five ten minutes before full time and we went in the change room after and everyone's celebrating having beers the club hadn't won there in something like twenty years away from home, and I fell asleep, just sat in the change room and then Reese, obviously you know well my best mate he uh, he sort of ran the uh, sort of raised the alarm and told people and uh then on monday so 2 days later i went back to the hospital and they said you're done so i, I probably spent yeah the ne- the next day just crying if i'm completely honest uh i'd had this idea that i was going to play rugby as as high a level as i could i'd played it since i was the age of 5 i was going to go on and be a pro for 10 years and then within a within a weekend it was done so yeah I, I, like identity's tied up into that a lot um because you see yourself as not just Jack, but Jack, the rugby player. So uh, I struggled with that for quite a
0: while. Yeah, I was going to say, like, obviously, you play rugby, you try, you, you hide any old injury just to keep going. That's like, the nature of the sport. It's not a positive. But I remember when, even when I played as a young age, you kind of think you're invincible, don't you? You do think you're invincible. And then these things happen. It's like, you're at a young enough age where it's like, do you listen to the doctors? Like, the, I always have like, an, like, the doctors are always going to cover their backs. So they're always going to, that's my opinion. Yeah. Like they're always going to. Give you the worst case scenario. Like, All right, yeah, but obviously, when it comes to your head, you never understand it. I try to think. I like, oh, I can't remember. That, but I've definitely, I've definitely been twice. I remember the first first time it happened at uni, it was at like our cousin or varsity game. Played on. I was like, I can't see anything here. Played on, and then as soon as I got, we got sub like ten minutes ago. As soon as I got on subbed, I was just sick everywhere, and I was just, like, and every, and then you just don't think of it here. You just think, oh, like of course I'm gonna like I'm not gonna miss out going to the student union, like. You feel fine. You feel fine, don't you? You feel <laughs> this, fine. The, right? yeah. the physio is like, "Oh, we recommend you not to drink." I was like, "Oh, well, you're obviously not like not going to drink." Like, but yeah, that's you. Just kind of got to listen to the people at the right stage. But it's it's tough. I think it's tough. It's tough as a boy yeah. as well.
1: It's still. I reckon that though for you, Jack. That shows I think a huge maturity to do that oh, because I know that if it would have been basically any other injury apart from the head, you would have cracked on with it. I imagine. Like if you could have anything else, you fix it and you get, and you play the game. Yeah. Um, and the doctors will tell you that, like they told me with my shoulder, they said, you know, that I remember seeing, sitting down with six of them at one point and they're all telling the same story. Like, you know, you can't, one more of these dislocations or whatever. And it's, it's not fixing the shoulder. It's what we can salvage out of it to keep it together for future life. And you don't think about it at the age that we are, but for you to, take the scan and make that decision at that young an age. I mean, I think it shows a lot of maturity. And I think as this data starts to come out, it will be shown to be the right call. And the more that people talk about it, I mean, just I was watching the, um, the Beyond 80s, the documentary, uh, The True Price of Concussion, recently, um, and they've got a few people talking about it. And uh, the way Messi was talking there about someone's they throw up when they've had their head hit and lewis moody was saying how you know the players and the physios thought it was a joke but they get up and just you know you laugh it off and you get on with it but then you know people like jamie Cudmore coming forward and saying the more he plays that every hit he gets on the heads and pushing himself to that level he's obviously thinking the next time in future if he has a bit of a a mental wobble or if he has a, a dip in his mood or if he gets if he feels a bit violent he's not sure whether that's him now or whether that's the head injuries and and that must even for you and it, and it does for me a bit with because i've had a couple of concussions as well that does play on my mind is like is that the start of something should i get that checked and you know you start to double guess yourself a bit i guess
2: yeah i definitely had that a lot at the start particularly when i found i was quite volatile emotionally um I guess we'll, we'll well. Right now, we don't know, do we? And there's lots of different theories going around. I don't know if you've heard the recent theory about um, forceps used on babies, and that can make them more susceptible to concussion as they're older. That's a current theory I've heard because that happened to me. I was I was brought out with forceps, and so you start to think, oh, maybe that's the reason. And it, I was just a ticking time bomb if I played a contact sport. But we just don't know, do we? And I hope that it will end up being a good decision. I mean. Um, yeah as I say heading a football and, and having to go and sit in a dark room for a few hours is, is probably the only sign I
1: need right now though to be honest but um, it's really scary isn't it? I've had two occasions where I, I, just to say I've never actually got myself checked for concussion at any point in my career and the more that this discussion goes on you know in the media the more it's not ideal timing now to go and check it but after we come out of this one of the first things I'm going to do is have a scan on my brain just just to see what, and Jack, you know, you've obviously had it, and they can see, they can't see everything and they won't know the full cause, but they can at least show something towards it. But the the occasion that I was most uh, vivid for me was we were playing this game away at Tabard. Uh, and you, I think you were coaching, uh, and we won the game. And there was a fight that started, I think, towards the end when they were losing. And I basically just got beaten up by, you know, three or four of their players. Trying to <laughs> I think, I was trying to help someone, uh, and I hope someone was trying to help me as well. But it, it was—it's—it was a bit of a blur that whole moment of the game. And then I come off, and you know, I—I I don't come forward and say anything because I, I feel generally okay. Um, get stitched up by their physio, and you know, you, you forget about it in the bar afterwards. And that's why we like rugby is because you don't—you know—take it further than that. It's just done. But I remember driving home after that game and just suddenly just in floods of tears just in the car it was on halloween as well it was before social that was going to happen i didn't go out but then i have from that moment i had to pull over and you assume it's due to the hit in the head but then you kind of try and balance your your previous life when you're younger and how emotionally volatile i was then to now and, and the connection and you could you know you could go down that, that rabbit hole as long as you want but i ended up in in a quiet pub with a couple of my mates having a beer after that. I've got nothing in between that time at all. So, and this is the first time I've spoken about it. And it's not to kind of, you know, say, oh, poor me, you know, everyone's putting their hand up now and saying, oh, how tough this game is. It's just, I think for me and for other players now to, when they get the opportunity to definitely go and, you know, take it far more seriously than I guess I did personally, not saying the HAC or you, you know, it's my decision to, to not tell you that. It's my decision to keep it quiet until now. But I think it's good that we're having these platforms to talk about that. And I'm going to get, you know, the the assistance I need, I think, to just have a look at it and make sure that my moods that I sometimes have and not, you know, link to something that I was unaware of, basically.
0: I, th- I think you were good though, Jack. You could tell, obviously, I didn't know much of your background before, but you could tell you had a, concern for our welfare especially when it came to our heads i always find as if when we play rugby now is well you just listen to the physio they're obviously the specialist to an extent but i think every physio that i've had they've all been pretty pretty good at like analyzing or knowing whether or not i should play or not
2: it's really tricky because as as we discussed it is invisible and i remember occasions where you you'd see something that's not quite right and you'd pull them off and you'd explain look you've had a knock to the head you're done and some people will go yeah that's cool other people particularly if it's a tight game and they think they can do something or they can have impact like I I'm mean some people would be like "Nah, I'm fine let me on let me on and you've got no evidence other than what you saw and felt to say no you're done and it's really difficult because they think you're doing them a disservice but you know deep down you're not but I can see why so many people get wrapped up into it and say oh well he says he's fine let him let him crack on or she she says yeah I can remember what day it is, I'm fine. And at the top level of the game, there's enough precautions in place, but in the community game, I think that's where it's rife, potentially, if we're not careful, so yeah. it's scary.
0: The times I've had, like, knocks ahead, it definitely plays with my emotions. Like, it sounds weird, but I've actually got, like, overly aggressive. I can't remember that time it happened to uni. It's not sort of proud of, but, like, went to uni, to uni, like, getting into a bit of a scrap. I was like, I wouldn't have done that otherwise. Obviously, there's a lot of things. You can't put the two-two together to an extent, but but like my emotions were definitely played with post like, having a concussion as well.
2: Yeah, you just, like, imagine your case, Mesh, you would have just said, oh, I must have had a dodgy prawn, even if you don't eat prawns. But you just my saw you me yourself. be
0: sick, like, on the touchline. <laughs> they were like, oh, yeah, or Mesh and booze already, like, kind of thing. Like, you know, like, That's the thing, though, but it's, yeah. it's You don't put the two together. And you think, it's weird because you think once you're sick, you're fine. Like, normally, if you're sick, like, got food poisoning, yeah. you're fine, aren't you, afterwards, right? Like? Yeah. But it's actually quite interesting. I don't know if you know the story of uh, Aaron Hernandez, he played in the NFL. So he um there's a documentary on Netflix about it, like spoiler alert, he plays New England Patriots, kills his brother-in-law, um, gets to prison, commits suicide. Then afterwards, he have like an autopsy on his brain, and basically he had so much damage to his brain from the NFL through the concussions. It was he was 27, it was similar to like a 60, 65-year-old, and basically it was like damage to his frontal lobes, and part of the problem to his lobe was like it needs to um enhanced aggression and it impairs his judgment and it's really interesting because you can't see that once until someone's died so you can't see it until someone cuts open the brain and that's why there's loads of stories and evidence that people think oj simpson had it as well and obviously like killing his wife killing like so it's so but you, like i said it's invisible you can't see it at the moment you can't see it scientists can't see it until the person's dead and you like the brain apart
2: yeah I think they're figuring out there's a lot of correlation I think the nut to crack will be okay this is actual causation this yeah. is this is directly linked and once we get to that that point we might be much much more informed to to sort of safeguard people better but um it's going to be tricky I guess there's still a long road ahead
1: Just from your own experience then, Jack, after you made that decision to to retire from rugby, you said, you know, obviously that was a down moment for you. How, just talk us through the, the first sort of year or so after that retirement and then, because obviously you got back into rugby with the coaching, but what was, what conversations were you having with people? What was your mindset like in that period when you were figuring out what to do? I mean, it's all relative, isn't it? But like... Yeah, it was a dark period for me for what I've been
2: through because as I, as I talked about, my I, th- I felt my whole identity was I'm Jack Pattinson, the rugby player. That's what people know me as. And then all of a sudden that's gone. And I was lost. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. I'd never thought about what I'd be interested in if rugby didn't work out. So immediately I was lost with a career. Applying to jobs, I look back now and I think, what was I applying for there? like I was applying to audit roles. I was applying to creative like um arty right like oh, what was i doing looking back but i was just trying to figure stuff out i guess and I, yeah i probably went for a period of two <laughs> or three months which is certainly the lowest i i can recall in my life uh, other than like when you have like a family or friend bereavement something like that but it was like a sustained period of feeling low and um and lost and trying to figure out like what what am i about now like what, what do i do what do i care about <sighs> got talking to talk into people and you sort of want someone to just give you the answer and then all of a sudden you'll feel better and you'll have direction again. But looking back, I actually felt it was a real blessing in disguise for me. I I learned a lot about myself and and what's important. And Yeah, I stumbled into a job, to be honest, if I'm honest, in the city. Uh, A good friend that I played English students with um, was kind enough to help me out in this financial headhunting firm and I guess that helped settle me for a bit. It gave me a bit of purpose um, or direction at the least for, for a good sort of year. And then... Yeah, one of my old coaches just said to me randomly, why don't you come and coach our kids on a Sunday morning back at your home club, see how you find it. So I went down, didn't know how to coach, didn't know what I was doing, had all the gear on. I think I even had like Lycra undershorts on, like one of those terrible looking coaches you see on a Sunday. Um, And then, yeah, some kid came up to me at the end with his mum and said, thanks, sir, I loved it. And I just had this eureka moment, if I'm completely honest, like, actually that was pretty good i i should do my badges i should get into this and then within a couple of months i did my level two course with reese um at the end of the level two course i got offered a six-week uh job because this guy in the rfu was ill and they needed six week cover so i packed in a it was actually fairly well paid paid in the city and um packed it in for a six-week job which at the time i guess was a massive risk to do that uh like i had rent to pay with hannah and yeah, took the job and I've never really looked back. It's sort of just gone from there. So uh, I've been incredibly lucky, but um, I feel like I've found my higher calling, is, as cliche as that sounds. like Hannah said to me, she was like, yeah. I think you were probably meant to be a coach more so than a player. And maybe that's just us sort of confirming our situation now. But I now sort of think, yeah, that that is what is more, I'm more suited to being a coach, I think, than a player.
0: I've never seen you play, but I've seen you coach, Jack, and I agree.
1: <laughs> couldn't catch couldn't pass couldn't tackle so uh, yeah I've seen you played for five minutes on your highlights reel just half an hour ago and I also agree so
2: <laughs> yeah well I, like it's, it's the same as when you're a player you're always trying to be a better player aren't you like all the time you never go right I've cracked it I've beaten the game I'm done and it's even more so in the coach, like as a coach, you're, you're just always trying to be a get better coach. And it's like this endless pursuit of trying to get better, it's infinite. And I love that, I'm addicted to that. But what I think is even more enjoyable as a coach, and don't get me wrong, I really miss playing and that buzz. And when you're on your trial line trying to defend and then that group feeling after, and you don't quite have that as a coach. However, I love the challenge of trying to bring a group of people together to become a team and to be effective and the struggle and the highs and the lows, I, I'm addicted to that. So. Yeah, whether it's a higher calling or not, I don't know. But I'm, I'm just so obsessed with this dynamic struggle. I, and I, I know I can't complete coaching and I, I'm obsessed by that. Yeah, what's your approach to that now
1: then? Because you see that, I guess, a lot of the top coaches in the game at the moment, I mean, in any sport, any job, you've got to be a motivator and you've got to know how people tick and how to, how to speak to them and get the best out of them. What's the kind of... What's your approach to that and then you know how much experience do you draw on from your playing career to get to put into that
2: yeah i mean to throw in a curveball i'm not convinced that the coach's role is to motivate and mo- motivations may be a separate debate i mean my personal feeling on motivation is it's 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 almost like the life experience that we all go through it ebbs and flows like how many times do you wake up sometimes you feel great you feel motivated the next day you don't and I've become more comfortable with accepting that, that it's going to ebb and flow. And I struggle when people think, this is my opinion, that people think that they can control it and you can just flick a switch and then all of a sudden you should be there. And if you're not motivated, then there's something wrong and you've got to go and flick that switch. Like, I I don't think that's reality. I think people um, are searching for these golden bullets that don't exist. So yeah, and I I mean, I'm not saying I'm a great coach, but can you remember one motivating speech I did? Like, I I can't. I don't think I'm particularly good at that. Maybe I'm saying that I don't believe in it because I'm not very good at it, but um, my feeling was that, that, well, if you look, what is coaching? I would I would argue that it's, it should be defined as a multifaceted series of interactions that are planned, reactive, and instinctive. Like, I, I would see you in the car park before a game and I'd think I'm coaching. How I interact with you in that very moment, for me, would be coaching. How I interact with you pre-game, during the game, after the game. I, I think I'm coaching all the time. Some of it unplanned. Some of it's a disaster, some of it I'm just going on my gut and some of it I'm trying to react to potential problems or things that I'm seeing. So it's pretty complex and dynamic. I I just think the role of the coach is so expansive and you're a psychologist, you're a friend, you're a tactician. You're a bad bloke when you have to make tough calls. Um, So you're playing all these different roles. You're trying to develop the coaches around you. Like it's just, I just think it's complex really, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I remember from from when you did coach that the one thing that i really kind of responded to was that you did put the onus back on the players essentially and you kind of just laid out the tools to to approach it with and then just asking questions and then make allowing us to come up with the answers to them so there's nothing you don't want a coach who's too imposing or, or laying down their plan and not listening to the players who are feeding back constantly all the time so it just made i think us all think a lot more carefully about the game and and then how we were playing it and so for me that was it was great to have that kind of freedom at that time.
2: I think I had it easy at HAC like don't get me wrong we worked hard and we, we did a lot behind the scenes and I cared immensely still do care immensely about the club and you boys but I had really really good players like Factor, Hard as Nails, Messi. you would have moments of absolute magic and I'd be like I don't know how you just did that and we had that in abundance like so much so many talented players and for me, my vision was I've just got to create a high-quality experience for them, like make it feel good, make training fun and feel like they're learning, give them ownership so they they feel like it's their team because it is your team, it's not my team, Um, make game day feel as as cool as possible and and you guys would do the rest. I I don't remember us having a particular game planned throughout throughout the season, it was more just sort of empower you guys and you guys are so good and you'll just figure out ways to beat teams, but you can't do that everywhere. Like I have, I'm in lots of different environments where you can't do that and you have to work really hard to try and get to that place where you can eventually let go. But no, you guys, it was a pleasure. It was, it was easy looking back. You're just so yeah. comfortable with it.
0: Wait, when I, when I, when I broke your GoPro, we <laughs> you put, you put GoPro, you put GoPro, me and I was like, the weirder, and then the, the thing broke. I was like, mate, I'm so sorry, I'll buy a new one. Even then, I thought you're going to hook me. I was like, mate, I just I tried, I said I'd pay you back. It's like, what are we doing? Like, uh, but no, uh, like, not even coaching, though, that can go to like, any job, like, any managerial role. Like, if you're eliciting some sort of fear, then the people are just, yeah, they'll be scared of you, they're not going to produce the best work for you,
1: yeah. I've never been sure about that, and we've spoke because that, that's why I kind of asked you that, Jack. Because we kind of, in the past, my, my experience with coaches—I've had the same. I've had fear coach and, and love coach, and honestly, looking at sort of my performances across them, in some areas they were stronger, and in some areas they were weaker compared to which coach I was getting on a on a mental sort of mental health level of it. I've had periods where my mental health has been personally poor. That I, and i would you know uh, appreciate that that was what was happening but the you know the physicality level of you know the performance in that area for for a back rower was going up and that's why i was kind of wanted to get your thoughts on because there is more discussion of mental health now in the modern not just in the modern game but just in, life, in society in general it's it's a big topic that people are talking about a lot more when you're dealing now with the teams that you're dealing with how do you um how do you build that into your plans as a coach? Do you just kind of let them get on with it? And, and if, you know, show that love and they'll come to you if 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 they want to, or do you have to try and approach these new men, you know, this new group of men coming through as a different animal completely and try and cater to what they might be expecting now in that sort of mental health discussion environment? How, how do you approach that? And
2: it's a brilliant question. It's, it's something I'm, I'm really trying to learn about and I think it's in, incredibly serious. I think first and foremost, you've got to establish authentic rapport with the people you're going to coach. And that was always at the front of my mind when I was trying to coach you guys. Like, I have to get to know you as people, not just as rugby players and, and we'll build a relationship together. And some relationships grow faster than others and deeper than others, but there's got to be that rapport there because you won't listen to anything I have to say until you know how much I care at the end of the day. So I've got to be able to build that rapport and and we've got to have that sort of mutual care for each other. Um, I think our language, the vernacular around mental health is really important. Um, I I think it's something that needs considering. I love how you guys, and I'd be interested to know if you guys do this deliberately, you say mental hiccups a lot. That's
0: something I read about a couple of years ago, because just in the sense of hiccups, hiccups come and go. Just like
2: exactly and that's sort of ties into what i was talking about with motivation i think it ebbs and flows and um yeah. like my one concern i have particularly coaching like the younger generation coming through is that there's almost a bit of a, a false expectation that they should be happy all the time that they right. should feel yeah. good all the time and i mean we could i'm sure there's loads of different rabbit holes we could go off as to why that is and I'm 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 consciously trying to support the boys to in my context to help them understand that it's okay to feel down and it it's okay that you don't feel great all the time and you can feel anxious and even things like people would say I'm feeling really nervous before the game. I think even changing the language around, I'm feeling really concentrated. I feel poised. I'm really aware of like we're about to go and play this game, and and that just changes it all, doesn't it? If you say I'm I'm poised, I'm concentrated. I feel concentrated rather than. I'm nervous um, because when do you play your best, you play your best when you're in you're in flow. You're not you're not like thinking. You're just present, aren't you? You just play the game, and you usually play your worst when you've got loads of thinking going on. You're on the pitch yeah. and you're thinking like. So I'm trying to support the boys, and it's really difficult, but to to get them to understand that they're not their thoughts, and their thoughts will come and go, just like their their feelings and their emotions will come and go. And that's okay. But um, it's really hard to do that. And I'm still trying to figure it out myself because I'll have high and low periods too. So it's not a quick fix, is it? Yeah,
1: because I guess you're on like you're on that frontier now, aren't you, of those discussions? Like no coach five years ago and then back in the past would have had to really think about how to approach it. they'll have been approaching it without the vernacular, as you say, and they will have, you know, some coaches will instinctively be better at that than others. But now that it's actually, you know, a fixture in the the coaching or just you know the, the planning stages i guess it, it's part of the textbook maybe now more so than it was before
2: yeah and and, and do you know what we're, we're all guilty of it but how often do you you make an assumption on on a person on an individual of yeah. an incident or a, a, a like one interaction with them and you've caught them at a really bad moment and then in your head you're like right well, that's them and then six months later you find out something about them that happened to them when they were young or they've they've recently lost someone or they go through a tough time at home and it changes everything and then you're like wow how did i not see that how did i not why did i just have that assumption and i think we can all do better as that whether it was players coaches or just as people like just get to know people's stories better i appreciate that's difficult but um it, it changes everything like i had a lad who i spoke to yesterday like yeah, one of his friends was stabbed yesterday, and there I am trying to get him on a Zoom to talk about our defence. And I'm like, wow. "Wow, like that changes everything." For like, I, I don't, I'm, I don't understand his experience of life at all until I then hear that, and I'm like, "Well, I don't even think we should talk about defence. Let's just see how you are, mate." Like, yeah. so I think coaches, particularly like in the rugby context, are, are are becoming more mindful of it, and there's a lot of conversation around better people, better players, all that sort of All Black stuff. But it's true; like, we we do have to help with that, but where i think we fall down is that like i'm a coach and i've got 30 players i'm gonna have blind spots i'm not going to be able to see and understand every individual and i'm still trying to prepare a team to perform and win and that sort of stuff so you miss things and um that's sometimes when it can blow up and and someone can yeah feel like you've let them down I, i feel like i have done that with with people that i've coached but it's never been intentional i've just missed it or just haven't been aware of it and yeah, always trying to do better at not having those moments, but I guess it's just going to happen, isn't
0: it? Yeah. Well, like like mental health, like the concussion is quite invisible at times. But I think the biggest thing you can do is create, create an environment where people can talk. And I think I know quite often, like I can speak personally, like when I was suffering mentally, you don't want to tell your coach because you want to play. And yeah. Like they, they don't want to take you out of it. And then, and then sometimes, obviously, if they're not as educated in mental health, they might be like, or if you can't handle a game on a Saturday against bottom of the league, then when's he going to, I'm not going to play him in the big games, like things like that, like when it's actually just that certain yeah. point in your life, you need a break.
2: And do you know what? I- I'd be lying if coaches wouldn't think that, if I'm honest, like of course, yeah. p- a coach regard, particularly at the top level where there's money involved, there's, there's jobs on the line, like if we lose this game, I could be out of a job. Why, like how could a coach not think, oh, he's he's told me that he's, he's really struggling at the minute, maybe I should go with so-and-so instead. So it's, yeah. it's really tricky, isn't it?
1: It's similar to concussion, isn't it? I guess, like on the this uh, Beyond 80 docu on YouTube, you've got players being honest and saying, well, if I could hide it and, you know, my, my, this is my job, I need to get these years to make as much as I can before I look for something else when I'm older. What, the risk obviously is there, but is any player realistically at that level going to come forward and talk about either concussion risk or the mental health aspect of the game, and I guess it's it's about, like you say, instilling that trust from the coaching department and saying that if you if you take, a, and obviously if you take a game or two out, someone might come and take your place. So that there's always that balancing act to do, but it's it's got to be it's got to be about explaining to players that long term, this is going to be beneficial to you. There's no point if you're if you're struggling at this point now, and this could escalate into something worse. You might not, you know have the longevity of a career that that we want you to have. And so you're losing out at a future point. And it's the same concussion, isn't it? You're trying to explain that you're losing out for a few games at this point, but then if you keep going, you're you're going to lose out even bigger in the future.
2: Yeah, I think utopia will be when we can get to a place where everyone can be open and transparent. And as as Messi said, feel safe to talk and share. Um, That would be utopia. How how we can get there, I'm not quite sure. I'm fascinated to try and figure out how we can do that um I think a lot of like what you do in the environment can help shape that and how you make people feel um and there's sort of safe spaces you can offer and knowing that they can trust you to if they have a conversation with you and it it won't it's non-judgmental I think stuff like that's vitally yeah. important I certainly think I, I, I would like to think I'd have that um but until you're really in it and like let's say I was coaching a premiership team and and I've lost 10 on the bounce and I've got one more game to go and then my head's on the block like how much of a safe space would I realistically be offering to the playing group? Like, until I'm in that situation, I won't know how I react. I'd like to think I know how I'd react, but you don't. And I can see why it becomes really difficult. So it's um, it's challenging, isn't it? Because it's the mind so complex. This whole experience we we're all going through is so complex. Hundred yeah,
0: percent. And this, I know, like rugby's our common theme here, but like, even in the work, say if someone's having a tough time, like I always find when you have like a family bereavement, how long do people like? I think managers are quite tricky to get those people back to work because it's like you can't force them back say someone has a family bereavement they they deserve time they get time off but it's like when do you get them when do you pop that question about oh, are you ready to come back and that's what i think people struggle with obviously not being educated in mental health as well
2: yeah and then also i think we could all be better at just the ability to have difficult conversations yeah. um like someone said to me when i first started coaching if, it, if it's the hardest thing to do it's probably the right thing to do so I was always very deliberate if I had to tell someone they weren't going to be in the team that I'd, I'd call them. I, I didn't want to text someone or email them or let them find out by email because that's easy for me but it's not the right thing to do. So you try and do things like that and I think if we can be better at having those difficult conversations but being really specific about our language and how we might have that conversation, that can help. But um, as you say, it's, it's really difficult, isn't it? And it's not just sport, it's, it's business, isn't it? It's life.
0: I always find though those hardest... The harder the conversation is the better the benefits afterwards i often find
2: yeah and how often do you play the conversation through oh, in your head and you tired. think of all these hideous scenarios and then you actually have the conversation and it's like yeah cool all
1: good no drama in comparison to what you thought it was going to be when you actually verbalize it it's just completely not as good a deal as you make it up in your own head is it
2: lads i can't tell you how many nights i've slept badly this this is when i've been at hsc the other teams I've coached, about having difficult conversations about just dropping players. And you take some perspe- perspective. We're talking about a game where we're throwing a ball around on grass, which in a thousand years no one will remember. But I- I'm so worried about how that conversation is going to be. And 99% of the time the players are like, yeah, they're disappointed. They might think you're a, a knobhead for a bit but and, dis- and disagree with you. But at the end of the day, it's okay. I think
1: you know, don't you, personally, when you're in... And Mesh and I have spoken about sort of, you know, mental hiccups in the past and it kind of links into that discussion, doesn't it? Like, what's the difference between a mental hiccup and then what's something maybe more serious that you're going through and how do you define that within yourself? And then I guess f- from your perspective about telling players whether they're going to get dropped or not, that sleepless night that you're having is, is a good form of anxiety, if you see what I mean. It's the one that you want to have because, you know, it, it shows that you care about the players you're telling. And you wouldn't want to not have that feeling. And before a rugby game, like the kids you were saying about being nervous, you wouldn't want them to not have that. So you say to them, you know, I know this doesn't feel pleasant, but this is the good sign of it. And just trying to distinguish between when that becomes consecutive an- anxious moments and when there's no obvious reason for why they're sort of occurring. And I think that, just, dis- you know, that distinction at a young age, I think is important because like you said, there are kids now who are coming through, expect to be happy all the time. They expect rugby to be like life. They expect it to be, you know, happy throwing the ball around all the time and and it is going to be tough and that's just part of it. And it's, I think it's preparing them for the right toughness and what is not acceptable and what is not something you should be going through and what is, and it's, it's a hard, you know, it's hard to try and verbalize that too. Yeah. To it's anyone. a brilliant point factor and something
2: Hannah will say to me a lot when she sees that I'm, I'm pretty sort of agitated about having a difficult conversation or what I can see coming up. And, uh, like my biggest strength is my biggest weakness that I care. like it's great in some points as like people think that oh, he cares he, he comes from a place of love, but then the uh, torture is not the right word, but the struggle I have myself like because I care so much, and for other people, it would just be like a clean yeah. conversation done, move on, and I sometimes worry it, could that be something that holds me back from coaching at a higher level, like you hear stories about some some decisions or conversations at the international level about how cutthroats from conversations can be. And if you think, can I cut the mustard to do things like that? I don't know. I don't know. Do you become better at over time? I think vulnerability is a fascinating um, theme, and it's actually quite topical in coaching circles at the minute. So I do think there is huge power in vulnerability, and there's that brilliant um, TED talk. I don't know if you've seen it by Brene Brown. Um, but we can really connect with people when we see our vulnerabilities, not the strengths. And uh, yeah, it rings true. However, I think we need to also be very mindful that if I walk into an environment where I don't know anyone and I instantly display vulnerability and I've shown no level of competence, I'm talking as a coach, I I could be hung out to dry. So I think you have to have shown a level of competence. So Eddie Jones coming into England, where he's one of the best coaches in the world, let alone just rugby. He's got a CV behind him. He's, clearly got a very, very high level of competence. So it's it's easier for him to show um, signs of vulnerability and be more open. If I walk into the England team, no one knows me. I've got nothing behind me to back up any sort of credibility or competence I might have. And I show vulnerability straight away. I might be out the door quite quickly. So it's a really tricky one. Um, yeah. Can, can we get better at doing it? Absolutely. But it's difficult to get there. I think there's work that's got to be done yeah, to get it's there. it's a really tough balance, sense. isn't it? Destroy it. I think it's easier for players, but that might I might be wrong by saying that because I'm no longer a player. But I, I would feel it's easier for me to say to my mate in the dressing room who I'm close to, hey, look, I'm struggling with this, than a coach to come to 30 players. And the coach is the perceived leader, yeah. aren't they? Uh, perceived is a strong word as well, but... Um, how how vulnerable to that can they be? Because they're a bit of an outsider. The reality is, as a coach, you are an That's outsider. That's interesting
1: though that, that you do say because we so. we spoke to Izzy Christensen last week. I'm just giving that episode a plug again. We'll, we'll, we'll cut it out. we will that, but she she spoke about um, the changing room dynamic and how the disappointment that you go through as a player in a in a playing capacity and maybe not getting the position, and then how you interact with your teammates is similar to work. You know with with Mesh and I, I guess, we have, and everyone else in in, a, in their jobs, they have these thoughts of how vulnerable to appear to their colleagues and to their, their co-workers. In rugby terms, you just said there that, you know, you'd be quite open to um, giving off that vulnerability, maybe because, you know, the way you play, it's back row, it's hard hitting, so there's that counterbalance that you've got to do that. But from your experience, how's, that, how's the changing room been when you were a player and, I guess, to now when you when you ask players about, you know, how their relationships are with other players, how, how have you found that?
2: That's another good question. Um, you're always looking for, like, as a coach, you're always trying to get some sort of insight into the group and into how people are connecting or cause you, you I guess, essentially you're trying to mine for problems. You're trying to see what problems lie ahead. So you can try and put them out in the most basic sense before they sort of blow up. Um, But it's tough, it's tough because um, if you're winning, you don't really mine for those problems, not nearly as deep as you should. And so that's when sometimes the bigger problems can arise. Obviously when you lose, you mine because I guess that's human nature. And I I remember we went through a period when at HAC, we we were beating teams every week and then the start of the following season, we had a bit of a rude awakening and the reality is if i look back i wasn't mining for problems in terms of how we played in terms of how we connected as a group i started to let uh certain behaviours go myself and um from the playing group and we'd lost a little bit of uh lost a little bit of that and i guess the way the dressing room started to evolve might not have been too healthy just for a period of time if i look back and yeah look we managed to turn it around and there was a few things that um we did quite quite deliberately to to try and turn that around but um it's really tough because you don't have the direct insight. You're trying to pull that from your captain, from your senior players, just from random con- conversations, like very deliberately. So as an example, Messi would turn up to training. I would just try and pick his brains to try and get some insight on the dressing room. Uh, he might just think I'm just asking how things are, but I-, I would be quite deliberate beforehand. Like I've got to try and find that out. I want to understand if so-and-so is all right, or if there's anything I need to be mindful of there. So um, yeah, quite deliberate. You're not trying to manipulate. That's not the right word, but you're trying to extract information to help you yeah. make better decisions. Yeah. If, that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Bottom line, bottom line, you're not with you're not with the players for a long, a long amount of time duration. Like you see them a couple of times a week, and obviously, if they're mates within the team, they're going to see them all the time. But I think getting back to what you said about coming from you, Jack. I think it's so powerful. that It comes from a top down approach. Like we've talked about it before in like the workplace, like. If it comes from like a CEO and just normalizes the conversation, especially around mental health, it can be so poignant. Like, I think it happens quite a lot in football with managers when, say, if they've had a big loss, they bring it relatable to like how they've been or if they like previous players. Because I know like Gerald spoke about it before as well. It was like the feeling he was after the Chelsea game when he slipped. And it just makes it all relatable. Um, which, obviously, if you hear it from someone who's technically in charge, it's like, oh shit. Uh, you kind of have faith in them as well.
2: Yeah, I like so. I'm I, I go down rabbit holes with work. I'm just trying to learn, and I've been looking at servant leadership as a as a theory. And I think this idea of like the great man leader, so this sort of perfect leader that knows all the answers, everyone just follows sort of blindly. That that that's not the reality. I think it's people respond to people who who serve the group that are that are open about their flaws, but they come from a place of love, as as we've discussed and. Yeah, little examples like that where people can see that you're you're willing to show your flaws and, and you accept your flaws, but you're, you're trying to serve the group, you're trying to genuinely help them, you're trying to build relationships to help the group, like, I think people respond a lot better to that. And and that can work in any environment, as you say, like a CEO giving us, it goes beyond the speech, it's got to be actions and behaviours, because that's what actually yeah, shapes it, isn't it? So, yeah. Lads, but this is deep, I love how deep we've
1: gone.
0: So, turn that round. Flip a coin. Who's got to do? got to do a song, a story, a joke? Does it mean it's fair of you two.
2: Oh, like, okay. So it's between like, one of us. I thought I was a dead set. Yeah, oh, yeah, happy yeah. days! You got 50/50 50, 50 <laughs> chance. Okay, heads.
0: There's heads.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did we say in the start about fixing it? <laughs> we need to fix it. I don't have. I don't even have anything prepared. Like, well, I might.
2: Well, I listened to your first episode when you sung, and I thought that was outstanding. So, if you would just give us another song, okay,
1: <clears throat> okay. Right. So lately, been wondering who be there to take my place when I'm gone. You'll need love. To light the shadows on your face If a great wave shall fall It'll
0: fall upon us all And between the sand and stone Could you make it on your own?
1: If I could, then I would I'll go wherever you will go Way up high or down low, I'll go wherever you will go. That was outstanding.
2: You've actually got a good voice, on you? Messi. can well, you sing like
0: well, that? Uh, have you not listened to the other the episodes yet? Come on. Here, here, here.
2: Jack, I need to know, catch up with some. You. I'm sorry. Yeah, but thanks a lot, Jack.
0: Thanks for coming.
2: Lads, you're legends. Really nice to see you. And uh, I can't wait to catch up probably soon. Stay safe, all right? Keep up the good work.
1: See you soon. Good to see you. Please follow and share us on Instagram and Twitter at allchatspod with a space.